Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the prophets, and here we'll have our second discussion on Daniel chapter 8. If you've been blessed and helped by this podcast, we would be so thankful if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It really helps get this content on Bible, liturgy, and culture in front of a broader audience. We also want to thank you so much. We recently hit 1 million streams of this podcast, and we could not have done that without you. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 8. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alastair Roberts, James Bijan, and Jeff Myers. Uh, we're in the middle of a uh, study of Daniel chapter 8. We started this last week, and we got through the first 13 verses, the uh, first 12 verses of the chapter, uh, looking at uh, the vision that takes place in the third year of Belshazzar, when Daniel sees a ram representing the Persian Empire beside the canal It's attacked by a male goat, which represents the Greek empire of Alexander, and the ram of Persia is trampled underneath. Soon after, the the goat uh, representing Alexander tramples down the Persians. Uh, His horn is broken and four horns come up. That's a a portrayal of what happens in the aftermath of Alexander's uh, premature death. His death as a young man and his kingdom is broken up into different sections. We consider the possibility that those that might also have a successive kind of, uh, the horns might not just be uh, simultaneously existing, but a kind of succession of different Hellenistic empires that came after that. Uh, And then we looked at the career of the little horn that comes up from this Hellenistic empire. In the first instance, at least, it's, it's Antiochus, who is an expression of the Lord's anger against his own people. The transgression in verse 12 is the transgression of Israel, and the Lord is uh, disciplining his people through Antiochus. As Alistair pointed out toward the end of our last episode, we have this combination of Jew and Gentile who are collaborating in apostasy. Antiochus, a lot of Antiochus's actions are uh, provoked or driven or at least encouraged by corrupt priests uh, during his time. Uh, So he's not uh, he's not the sole actor and he's not acting without kind of without having these compromised priests giving him direction and advice. We're going to start in, in start in verse 13 when we have this lament from a holy one who begins speaking, how long is this going to go on? How long are the evening and morning, evening mornings going to last? Uh, we'll discuss that in just a second, but I wanted to suggest another kind of structure to the passage. Uh, I talked about the cycle. We have rises and falls going through the entire chapter, but we also have kind of a two-panel construction uh, the first 14 verses uh, form the first panel, and then verses 15 through the end of the chapter in verse 27 form the second panel. Uh, verse 1 uh, of chapter 8 begins with an introduction of Daniel as the one who's seeing the vision. He identifies himself again in verse 15, I, Daniel, had seen the vision. Then uh, he refers to the Ulai Canal in verse 2. Uh, he again reminds us that he's by the Ulai Canal in verse 16. Um, Then he sees the vision of the ram and Gabriel, who comes to him in the second half of the chapter, explains who the ram is. This is a vision of the Persian Empire, verse 20 of Media, the kings of Media and Persia. He sees the vision of the goat in verses 5 through 8, 
and he's told that this vision of the goat in verses 21 and 22 is about the Greek empire. Uh, and then the, uh, the vision that he sees of the little horn in verses 9 through 13, through, 9 through 14, uh, has um, its interpretation in verses 23 and following. So you have two panels that are um, running parallel. The first time he's seeing the vision, the second time he's receiving the interpretation of the vision. That's another way of, uh, of seeing the, the structure of the passage. Uh, but we're going to pick up in verse 13, where again, as I said, this, this holy one, Daniel is among the angels, as he has been before. He's conversing with angels. He's a prophet. And so he's in the Lord's council, and he can have conversations with the interpreting angels, and they can give him uh, direction and insight into how the, uh, how the visions that he's seeing should be interpreted. But he begins by overhearing two holy ones, two angelic figures, speaking to one another. And one is presenting a lament how long will this vision of regular sacrifice apply? How long will the tamid, the regular temple service, be interrupted? How long will the transgression cause de desolation? Verse 13, uh, so that the holy place and the host, the people and the, and the sanctuary are trampled. And in answer to that, we're given this very specific time period in verse 14. It's 2300 evening mornings. It's an unusual phrase uh, that I think refers to complete days. We can talk about that. But uh, there's, the very, there's a very specific time period that's given for how long it's going to be before the holy place uh, and the holy people are vindicated, as verse 14 says. Uh, so uh, thoughts about the 2300 evening mornings, both about the 2300 number uh, and about the phrase evening mornings, that, uh, that unusual way of describing a sequence of days. Many have seen this as corresponding to the period of time, which would be more appropriately seen as half days or referring to the evening and morning sacrifices, making um, 1,150 um, days of the period of time that the um, temple service was ceased during the um, actions of Antiochus until it was interrupted, until it was restored by the um, work of the Hasmoneans and the um, Maccabees. And so that would be a specific historical referent. Beyond that, there does seem to be something typological or symbolic about this number. 23 is not a number that we see a lot. I think you've mentioned this before in the context of um, Athaliah, the fact that she reigns for that period of time and the worship is ceased for that duration for six and a half or something equivalent years. And then there's the 23 years with Josiah's failure to uh, reestablish the temple after the collection hasn't been properly applied. And then at that point, actually restoring the temple service. So there might be some connection to those. I'm um, I'm personally inclined to take the twenty three hundred as um, as kind of full full days, um, and so yeah, almost seven years. And I'm also inclined then to take what's often translated as sanctuary in verses thirteen and fourteen, actually as a reference to the holy people, um, which is is. Kind of the, the way that that exact term is is used elsewhere in in Daniel actually, um, and if 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 you do that, you can work out I, I think a period of 
almost exactly, I mean, as far as we know, it could have been exactly um, uh, 2,300 days for which basically Israel was under persecution as a result of Antiochus. And so that would begin with Antiochus's removal of the burnt offering and it would continue on beyond merely the restoration of the sanctuary. It would continue on until all the subsequent invasions kind of triggered by Antiochus's actions came to an end. So after he died, he commissioned one of his generals to go and continue the war against Israel. And then his son did, and he commissioned others. And, and the final guy fell, um, uh, a king named Nicanor, um, pretty much bang on 2,300 days um, after it all started. So, I mean, that, that's my, um, that's the best sense I've been, been able to, make of it myself. Uh, James is a, I don't have the Hebrew text in front of me, is the, is the holy, uh, just uh, the, the phrase is just the holy. It doesn't specify place. So that's an interpolation in the, in the translation. Is that, is that right? Right. I mean, I mean, yeah, holy here is, is just Kodesh. Um, and, and so, you know, you can see that as a substantive, like a, a holy something. Um, I think everywhere else in Daniel, um, it is the the mikdash which refers to um, the the holy place, and you know, I mean, also a prefix norm, normally does that, like a prefix of place. Well, I think we, I think you can see it, kind of a, a, a census plenier kind of thing here, because verse thirteen does talk about the interruption of the tamid, so there is something going on at the holy place. And the holy place and the holy people are kind of mutually interpreting their, their, uh, the temple symbolizes the people and the people is like a living temple. Uh, so, yeah, the, the trampling of the host and the trampling of the holy, I think certainly would include, include the people. One of the things that intrigues me is the, well, first of all, the, it seems like the, I, I agree with you, James, that the 2300 is referring to, uh, complete days, not splitting, but it, the, the phrasing does suggest the, evening and morning offerings. And, and that in the context would highlight that too, with the talk about the tamid and the different daily things that take place in the temple. But uh, the reckoning, the time reckoning here is given in terms of the liturgy of the temple. The, uh, the, the temple is being treated as if it were a clock. Uh, and you can count the number of time periods by looking at the activities of the, of the temple. Uh, and then the, the other thing that is an intriguing phrasing to me in verse 14 is the uh, this would support your idea that this is the holy people primarily, uh, that uh, the, the verb at the end of verse 14 is uh, tzedak, which is justify or vindicate. Uh, it's translated as restored, but it really should be translated as vindicated. So at the end of these 2300 mornings, mornings and evenings, evenings and mornings, then the holy is going to be vindicated. It's going to be justified. Uh, I think, James, you've uh, interpreted this as vindication of, the, of one's cause. And I think that's a, way, a good way to put it. The Jews who have been trampled underfoot by Antiochus, the Jews and faithful believers who are later trampled underfoot of a of another Antiochus-like figure, uh, the Herods perhaps in the in the New Covenant, they will be vindicated, and that means that their cause is going to be upheld. God is going to restore them. God is going to elevate them. God is not going to let them be trampled anymore, and that's being described as an act of justification. So their resurrection, as it were, after this. Uh, the death of um, the Tamid and the death of the uh, the holy 
that that resurrection, that restoration, is going to be the justification of Israel. Right. And in answer to your question about verse twenty six, Peter, where we have this slightly unusual expression, the um, vision of the evening and the morning. Um, I would see that as basically dividing events up into two stages. So roughly when Antiochus kicked things off, there were three years for which the uh, the unbroken, you know, the, the continual was broken and didn't continue anymore. So there was three years of, of that. Um, and then there was the death of Antiochus, the restoration of, of the um, temple, which I see basically as, as then the start of the morning. And so the night was passed, the worst of the vision was over. Um, but there were still a lot of kings to be dealt with and, and things to be uh, cleaned up, which took another three years. And so um, the way I, I see it, then the vision as a whole um, lasts 2,300 um, days, but it can be thought of as um, in verse 26, the evening and the the morning. So there was the the worst of the persecution, and then the the morning after the cleanup operation, which was still pretty bloody. Um, and I, I see that as the, the way it's set out here. I would like to believe that there is some connection between the number twenty three hundred here and two hundred and seventy six on the shipwreck in Acts chapter twenty seven, which is the twenty third. Um, triangular number. If there were, it would really help matters because two of the most puzzling numbers in scripture would be connected together. <laughs> well, what, what would the connection be, Alistair? Uh, that you well, that, that is, that just that is the, like that. it just makes it a super puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> that is the $23,000 question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like James what you said about the evening morning that you have a you have a passage through night and and the dawn of day and we're seeing that with the prophecy about what's going to happen to the host and what's going to happen to the tamid and uh, beginning in verse 15 we have a kind of transition because we have a focus on Daniel himself as the one who received the vision but he embodies in his interactions with Gabriel here, he embodies that same kind of movement because when Gabriel comes out and begins to, and, and is going to interpret for him, uh, his first reaction is to uh, become fearful and fall on his face. Uh, he goes into a deep sleep, verse 18, until Gabriel touches him and he makes him stand upright. So he goes through the same kind of evening, morning. The prophet embodies the future uh, events of Israel's history. Hmm. Right. I wanted to raise the issue of the format of the whole um, uh, chapter. You spoke about it in terms of two panels, um, Peter. And, and as I was thinking about it, I, I thought it, it's, it's just an interesting way of presenting things. So a few times now in Daniel, we've had basically the vision and then afterwards the interpretation. And but that feels not the normal way of doing things in the big picture of Old Testament prophecy. Generally there, you get the whole thing in, in one, you, you get um, the vision sort of interspersed, or you don't even get separate interpretation really. And, and so I was thinking about it, it's unusual, it's, or slightly unusual at least in terms of the Old Testament, it's quite similar, though, to Jesus's parables, um, which are associated, at least in one case, with with secrets, with the secrets of the kingdom. 
the way in which you you initially get the parable largely or often in sort of symbolic terms or story terms and then later in some cases get the interpretation and um yeah I, I was just thinking about that and and wanted to raise it see what you guys made of it in in terms of a um a vehicle of communicating truth and and what's unique about it well one i i kind of thought of uh the gospel accounts when we got to the, when you get to the end of the chapter verse 26 uh, where he's told to keep the vision secret gabriel tells him to keep it secret because it pertains to many days in the future i think i guess particularly in our day of social media the idea of knowing something that you don't broadcast immediately <laughs> well it's it's quite a striking idea i mean it's an unusual idea that you might have something that uh, you know that's crucial to the future and yet uh it's sealed up and uh and in some in some ways it's kept secret um, but then uh, it, it reminded me of the, the various ways that jesus maintained secrecy about his own mission it's not merely the fact that you have uh, yeah the par- parables are part of that but he's also does signs wonders and then tells people not to not to mention it there's a whole phenomenon of what's called the, the messianic secret that seems to be related to this uh, so I, I think, yeah, I think you're right that there's a, a similarity to the way that uh, Jesus communicates, which which has a number of effects. I mean, one effect is to divide between those who are on the inside of the sacred and those who are on the outside. Uh, so it has a it has a, a kind of pragmatic effect on the hearers. It it uh, it actually does it it assumes a kind of division, but it also actually divides people because some are let in on the secret and some aren't. There's also the fact that many of the secrets that um, are within Jesus' own teaching and ministry aren't revealed until after a particular point, generally after the resurrection. And we see something similar, I think, in Daniel chapter 12 in verse 4, where he is told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The impression I get from that verse is that these visions, as he gathers gathers them over a period of years he'd be reflecting upon the previous vision for a great period of time and gradually some things would start to make a bit more sense then the next vision would add to that and then feed back into the previous vision and help him to see things in the previous vision that he had not noticed from a different angle and then as those things accumulated and as the time approached and as certain events started to be fulfilled he would have, and those who reflected upon the vis- his visions, would have a greater sense of what to expect in the future. And much of Jesus' teaching seems to be placing seeds of knowledge that will not yet germinate. Um, they're waiting dormant to be livened at some point in the future. And then at that point, suddenly an epiphany will arise. And did not Christ teach us this at that prior point? Um, I think something similar is going on here. There's a process of showing that prepares for this period of revealing in these time-delayed revelations. As you're meditating upon these and chewing them over, gradually there will be these bursts of insight that happen at key points as events befall the nation, for instance, that open up meaning of certain things. And then there's also the sense of um, the general shape of the future going forward, and then looking back upon the fulfillment, those have different aspects to them. And 
what's happening here is giving you a sense both of where the things are going in the broader shape, but also things that would be recognized from the looking back upon them as fulfillments and that God has indeed foretold and mapped out the future of his people for them. So does this mean, verse 26, practically speaking, that Daniel saw the vision, got the interpretation, and then is told to seal up the vision? Does that mean that he didn't tell his comrades this, that he didn't share this with anybody um, for some time maybe? Uh, and as Alistair was just saying, that uh, these visions keep piling up and he keeps reflecting on them and eventually will write them down, but not until some later time, maybe toward the end of his life. That also may explain why Daniel is so uh, sick to, him, to his stomach, so overcome with, uh, uh, with angst um, because of this, because he, he knows all this, or at least has some knowledge of the future, but can't share it with anybody. Um, can't write it down even uh, and distribute it. So I wonder if part of what's going on in terms of the ceiling is just literally a description of, of what to do with whatever material it's been written on. So whether that's, I mean, whether that's a parchment of, of some sort, but, you know, documents can be written and, and then sealed. And so obviously the, the, you can kind of give some uh make sure the contents haven't been altered or, or tampered with or, or anything. And we get this kind of notion in, um, I think it's Jeremiah when he buys the field and there is there are some open deeds and some closed or sealed deeds. And the idea, I assume, is that a sealed copy will be laid up somewhere for safekeeping and then there will be an open copy which could be consulted. And so people could go and, and look at it and, and verify various things. And um I'm sure what you're saying is right, Jeff, about like whether Daniel, um, Daniel not communicating it or, or disseminating it around. But I wonder if also there's just a more literal sense to it that Daniel was to write this down and, and to to seal the thing, you know. And so there would have been a, a, a sealed copy that you could see hadn't been opened um, since it was written, laid up somewhere. Interesting. I think, well, I mean, one of the implications of this is it uh, has to do with the scene we see in the book of Revelation where you see the unsealing of a scroll, which I think refers back to these Daniel visions that are sealed up until the time when they're going to be fulfilled. That puts us in the, in the realm of reading these in terms of the fulfillment of the old and the end of the old creation and not just, uh, not just about Antiochus, but it's uh, pointing ahead to something further. The, the question, one question I had was, what's about the rationale for keeping it secret, for sealing it up? Um, verse 26, it pertains to days in the future, to many days. Uh, the in the future part is an interpolation by the translator. So it pertains to many days. I think the, the uh, interpolation is correct. It's, it's something that's going to, not going to happen soon. So it's not, it's sealed up until it gets closer, apparently. But a lot of the visions have been, the vision in uh, Daniel 7 was also pertaining to things that are in the future. And uh, if Daniel 8 is taken as about Antiochus, then Daniel 7 actually stretches further into the future than Daniel 8 does. So it, uh, I guess the, the conclusion I came to was that uh, what's unique about Daniel 8 or what's different about Daniel 8 is that the, the beginning of that sequence is still 
still in the future. He's in the third year of Belshazzar. Medo-Persia is rising, but it's not, uh, it's not the power yet. But the vision begins with Medo-Persia. And then that is overthrown by uh, Greece. And then somebody, uh, a horn comes out of Greece. So that it's not just that it, the vision stretches out uh, and is recording things that are a long time in the future, but actually the start of the sequence of events is in the future. In the, in the other visions that Daniel has interpreted, the vision of the of the statue in chapter two, Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold in the vision of uh, the beast coming out of the sea in Daniel seven. It's when the vision begins, it's describing the present, the lion, uh, the lion beast that comes up out of the sea is, is Babylon. But this one is going to start at some point in the future. Um, but uh, um, any other thoughts on that? It, it seemed like an odd, it seemed like an odd rationale for sealing it up, given the fact that other visions also pertain to the distant future. Slightly tangential remark, but it is worth thinking about the degree to which prophetic writings are often themselves actors within prophecy. So in, within Revelation, it's the opening up of the scroll. It's the non-sealing of the book. In Jeremiah, it's the writing out of the document for Jehoiakim and the presentation of that. And then there are other details of writing out this document. Um, you think about Ezekiel eating the scroll. And here, I think, there's another case where we're having a prophetic document that the very material object perhaps has a symbolic import to it, not just the contents of it. With regard to the many days, Peter, I, I came to the same conclusion as you, that the, the, the uh, distinctive of it is that th this is a vision which, like the one in chapters 11 and 12, hadn't even got going. Um, so, yeah, I, I came to the same conclusion. Another question about verse 26, why is this called the vision of the evenings and the mornings? Is this just a convenient way of referring to it all, or is there something significant, something uh, instructive about it being called the vision of the evenings and the mornings? Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if James's earlier comments would help answer that, uh, talking about the evenings and mornings as the the darkness of uh, the time when the horn is triumphant, yielding to the light of the horn's defeat. Um, so the whole thing is about a, it's a vision of death and resurrection, a vision of night and day, as it were. We might also think about the focus upon the sanctuary within the book of Daniel, not so much to this point, but um, the state of the sanctuary becomes a real matter of concern in the concluding chapters. In this chapter, it's the state of the sanctuary that is connected with the evening and the mornings, or the holy. Um, in the next chapter, it's the what's going to happen um, to the sanctuary. And then in chapter 10, there's this concern, presumably provoked by the failures to rebuild the temple and the opposition that they faced in um, the reign of Cyrus, that provokes other questions about the sanctuary and what's its destiny. And that's answered in the final vision. And that focus suggests that although you have these comings and goings of these kings, ultimately the real thing that is the crux of everything is the state of the sanctuary, the relationship between God and his people and his presence in their midst. I want to pick up a couple of things from uh, the interpretation of the horn, the, the little horn that comes up. Uh, that's in verses 23 and following. He's described as being 
strong. Oh, it's, it's strong of face in the last line, translated as insolent in the uh, NASB, but it's, it's he's strong of face. Um, I think of Ezekiel who sets his face like Flint or Jesus who sets his face to Jerusalem. There's this kind of determination uh, and um, a fierceness of uh, purpose. Um, he's also described as somebody who's skilled at riddles. Uh, skilled at in- intrigue is uh, translated gives it more of a political character. But the uh, the word is it is it, it suggests the same kind of skill that Daniel has shown throughout the uh, throughout Daniel that he's able to untie knots and he has the wisdom to to uh, to solve riddles. And this this um, future horn, this king is going to be a, a similar kind of it's going to have a similar kind of wisdom. Uh, a kind of anti-Daniel, almost a, a, a kind of dark version of Solomon, um, a, a king who has the skill and wisdom to, to uh, uh, untie knots and figure out things that are secret. The other thing that I, I wanted to highlight is the, the fact that it's only in this interpretation that we learn that he will be shattered, he will be broken without, without hand. Uh, when he opposes the Prince of Princes, uh, verse 25, the uh, original vision shows him growing and trampling and uh, continuing to trample for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Uh, but it doesn't give us the, the vision of his eventual downfall. But in the interpretation, we're told of that. So this, the delay of that information is, in, is intriguing, we're, that Daniel didn't see that in the vision, or at least doesn't record it as part of the vision. Uh, but it's a, an assurance that this, uh, this proud character, the self-exalting, self-magnifying character, this king who's going to defy uh, the prince of princes, who's going to take over the uh, the sanctuary and trample down the people, the holy people, that he won't get away with it. Uh, that just as Belshazzar didn't get away with manhandling the temple vessels, this, uh, this future king is not going to get away with manhandling the holy people of God. There's something of a Luciferian character to this figure. Um, the sort of cunning that he displays is similar to that of the serpent. We can maybe think also of ways that he's described in chapter 11, where um, he comes in without warning. He obtains the kingdom by flatteries. He is someone who um, acts deceitfully and becomes strong with a small people. He's able to manipulate people and he's able to deceive. He's a person who's driven by pride and yet has exceptional craftiness and shrewdness, which leads to his success. Um, if this is an Antiochus, we could think of the way that he rises to the throne, the way that he presents himself as the true heir, or the one acting in the place of Demetrius, who's in um, his nephew, who's imprisoned, and then comes along with an infant co-regent who he later murders, and he gains the kingdom by means of getting key people upon his side by presenting himself as acting in a way that he isn't actually. Um, he's using masks and deceit and lies and flatteries. And all of these are characteristic of the serpent. And at key points in history, we see the serpentine character behind individual rulers coming to the foreground. They start to take on that monstrous aspect we can think maybe of Pharaoh at the beginning of the Exodus or some of these other figures like Herod um, and killing the infant, infants at the time of Christ's birth. 
And here's another such figure, something of the character of the dragon behind these beasts is coming to the surface. Something that struck me as interesting about the way in which this anti-messianic figure is described is that a lot of the attributes are in and of themselves fairly positive. You know, a king of bold face or sort of strong face. He's able to understand riddles. He has great power. Um, He succeeds in what he does. You know, in a a different light, these could be very good things. And uh, I suppose it's so often like that with these kind of figures. Their attributes, if, if you like, turn to their uh, downfall, what could have been used for godly purposes, are used for exactly the wrong um, purposes. And I, I, I see this anti-Messianic figure very much in, in that um, sort of light. There's also the interesting uh, description that he will, um, where is it? It will not be his own power in verse um, 24. Um, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And I wonder if this is one of those double entendres like with um Pilot, um, his power came from above, Jesus said, which literally meant, I guess, immediately from Caesar. Um, but Jesus had a deeper meaning. And I, I wonder if the, the same thing is going on here. I mean, Antiochus did have to hire armies, basically, from other um, people and other nations. It, it wasn't his own power. But in a deeper sense, um, it wasn't his own power as well. This, this whole thing was under God's sovereign control from start to finish. Honestly, reading through this, these from 23 to 25, the description of this guy is excessive. It's um, over the top. Um, and the fearful destruction, the destroying mighty men, um, all of this, all of this destroying many, uh, rising up against the Prince of Peace, Prince of Princes being broken, but not by any human. It hardly seems to apply to Antiochus. Um, and for that matter, it hardly seems to apply to the Herods. Um, this is uh, quite strong language. Um, and and I, just, I just call attention to that. Uh, it, it, I don't, have we seen this kind of language? Uh, well, I guess we saw it with the little horn in chapter 7. Um, but it's odd to me. So you're suggesting that as support for Alistair's comment about the uh, satanic, um, satanic dimensions of this character coming, coming out to the fore. So this is something more than a human power at work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At least that. And maybe this also plays into what we talked about earlier, how there's at least a double, maybe, more reference here in terms of prophetic, uh, you know, Antiochus, and then also, um, you know, to- at the end of the old creation with um, the rising up against the prince of princes being, of course, Christ um, and being broken, but not by human hand. So we're, we're, we're in the uh, time period of the book of Revelation here. The language just seems to be uh, pressing well beyond Antiochus. It, it does seem striking, the, the language. I think that's right, Jeff. But, I mean, it re- reminds me of some ways in which uh, of the way in which Jerusalem's destru- destruction is described in Lamentations. So you get this 
language of, of never has a city undergone anything like this before. What, what's been seen in these days, in Nebuchadnezzar's days, nothing has ever been like it. And, you know, just in historical terms, I mean, it happened all the time. There was nothing uh, remarkable about it at all. The, the horror, I think, captured in Lamentations is that this has now happened to God's own city and to God's holy place uh what's been done elsewhere has has happened here and i wonder if that's part of the sense of uh what's going on here while you could have some uh animal kind of just alexander the great you know running to and fro and, and slaughtering loads and taking nations um in comparison to what happened at the temple that's nothing because that's a way in, in just some pagan land. But what's happening now and going on here is that God's own um, sanctuary is being invaded. And I wonder if, I think it's totally right, that it sounds really over the top. And I, I wonder if that is just meant to um, capture the, the sanctity and the sacredness of, of what's been defiled here. So maybe we should not read some of these phrases to refer to the kinds of... Uh, actions, the kinds of events that uh, kings engage in, like destroying mighty men in verse 24. And that's not necessarily something that happens in battle. The mighty men are the faithful Jews. The fearful destruction that he causes is in relationship to the temple. Um, and let's see what else is destroying many in verse 25. Um, yeah, that actually, James, that, that helps. I think that makes a lot of sense, um, given the centrality of the people of God in the temple and the place of the temple in God's, uh, God's plan. This is, yeah, this is pretty awful. This is pretty bad. If you if you think about it, the vision as a whole is viewed from the temple, isn't it? I mean, Antiochus, he, he as a horn is described. You know, in verse ten, it grew great, um, and in verse eleven, it became great, even as. And this is the same language as is applied to Alexander. He's the great horn, and yet, in the big scheme of things, Antiochus was nothing compared to Alexander. He he was a spent force by this time. It, the he is portrayed as great though um because it's viewed from the perspective of of israel you know what alexander did was off off at a distance but now this is this is up close right which also could explain um the the final verses the final verse for daniel is uh even after the interpretation even after he's gotten the understanding that he wanted he's still still sick for sick for days and uh he's overwhelmed by the vision so yeah, it's not the it's not the political power of this little horn that's makes him so terrifying. It's the the target of his attacks, which is God's holy people and God's holy God's holy place. It, well, let's not forget too. I don't think this has been mentioned, but there ain't no temple when Daniel sees yep. this vision. Um, <laughs> so there's there's this uh, so there's a sense that there's a, going to be a temple, but then it's going to be defiled and, yeah. uh, and and like like it is and so that's so it's like daniel's thinking hmm we just went through this already <laughs> and they're gonna and the people of israel are going to go through it again um something like that yeah great point the points that um 
Jeff and James were making about the the importance of the centrality of Israel and the temple, I think when we read these sorts of almost hyperbolic statements, it reminds us that there is a vertical dimension to what's taking place, not merely a horizontal dimension. It's very easy to read these chapters of Daniel and other parts of scripture as if this is similar to Nostradamus predicting certain events of the future and some nation is going to rise, another nation is going to fall, some empire is going to expand, another is going to contract. And all these toings and froings within the events of history. And to miss the fact that all of this is ordered around a divine plan, a heavenly plan, and a heavenly sovereignty. That's what's really playing out. And in the case of Antiochus, as James notes, he's a spent force. He's been humiliated by the Romans in Greece. Now he's coming back with his tail between his legs, and he wants to as it were, take it out upon the Jews. This is a situation where they've actually heard rumours have been spread that he's dead, and now they can start to act as if he was not around anymore. And so he's really, he really is a spent force, but yet he's someone who, as that spent force, ends up taking arms against the Lord himself. And so he's engaging in a sort of conflict that's far more direct in opposition to the Lord than anything that's happened previously. And he's doing so as an ally and supporter of a certain faction of the Jews themselves. And that sense of these horizontal conflicts, which happen all the time, and they are important because this is within the orbit of the um, the imperial structure that the Lord has set up for his people, and he's integrating his people into that and the Gentiles into his people. But ultimately, there is this vertical dimension that we should never lose sight of. And if we lose sight of that, we start to think about history very differently. But yet the central events in history are not necessarily the rise of these great empires can pass over the rise of Alexander in just a few words, but in the case of Antiochus, because he attacks the Lord, his defeat is an event of so much greater proportion. You can maybe think about this in scripture more generally. The okay. prayer of someone like Hannah matters far more than the events of many great kings in the history of Israel and Judah who are unfaithful. Yeah, and that's brought out quite explicitly in verse 11, magnifies to be equal with the commander of the host. That could be the a high priest, but it could also be, or the prince of the host, uh, could be the Lord himself or the angel of Yahweh. Verse 25, the prince of the princes almost surely is God himself. So he's opposing, as you said, Alistair, he's directly uh, opposing the Lord. And that's, uh, that's what makes it such a titanic offense and rebellion. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.